0: take your copy of the Bible God's Word turn to John chapter 2 some passages you, know, I'm, you know, I'm honest about these things some passages are really easy to preach we like them they're like a warm blanket we like to, to cozy up with them in the fall and it's enjoyable <laughs> there are some passages that are not quite that more, maybe a bit abrasive, more like sandpaper taking off our rough edges. This is one of those passages. And if you grew up in the church, you learned in Sunday school. I might suggest that many of us don't think about this passage that often, and when we do, we don't actually engage it. If one, it's one of those things that we understand conceptually, but we never let it touch our mind and our hearts. And so I'm going to encourage you as the scriptures is read, are read, scriptures are read, Right verbs there. I'm going to encourage you to re- renew your commitment to sit beneath them. And that you would ask the Lord to help you understand them. And that you would even go so far as to ask the Lord to help you believe them. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, And sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written <clears throat> Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, <clears throat> and in 3 days I you will raise it up in 3 days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would send your spirit among us that we might be humbled beneath your word. Lord, we bring so many preconceived notions, some very righteous and correct, some well-intended and wrong. When it comes to your word, and particularly passages like this, and so we ask that you would speak and that we would hear. Not only that you would speak and that we might hear, but that we might hear from heaven itself. That we would hear your word. Give your help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny the things that you retain from childhood. Those memories that kind of stick in your brain. You don't know exactly how they got there, but they're there and they just kind of never seem to leave. I have one of those about this passage particular. As you know, I grew up in a a church, uh, PCA church. I'm very blessed in that regard. And I remember when I was young, my parents gave me um, some music to listen to. They gave me a set by Michael Card. Some of you will know that name. Some of you will laugh at that name. Uh, Some of you will smirk and just quietly keep it to yourself. But it's a good name nonetheless. Michael Card set his mission as a uh, musician He is perfect pitch and plays something like 45 instruments. It made it his mission uh, to set the scriptures to music. And so he started writing music when he was young to try to tell the story of the scriptures. It's put him in all kinds of financial hot water uh, as the publishers refused to publish his music because it sounds too much like the Bible, and they don't think it will sell. Uh, they actually dropped him over his... Uh, his album on Hebrews because the quote was, it sounds too much like Hebrews. Um, (laughs) Go figure. But anyways, back to the story. There's one song in his early work, and it's a thing called The Life, and it's trying to tell the story of Jesus in song. And there's one in there uh, three quarters of the way through called God's Own Fool. And as a child, I remember hearing it and have the lyrics kind of seared into my mind as it brings this text and a number of others to life. Michael Carr, that high, high tenor. Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad. The priest said a demon's to blame but God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. And one line from that stuck in my mind from when I was young and heard that. God in the form of this angry young man. And I remember being young going, is that right? Is this guy crazy? I mean, is did my parents buy me, like, a wonky set of music? Is this, is this terrible? Should I trust this? Should I listen to this? Now, you get a little older, you find out Michael Card's actually a member of a PCA church. All his song lyrics are submitted to his session. They are approved by his PCA church in Nashville and have been all of his career. But it does present a challenge because we all have in our minds this kind of fixed idea of what Jesus behaves like. We have it fixed in our hearts like what he conducts himself like. And I was raised in a deeply southern family and the idea of somebody being angry in public is like, no, you never do that. Surely Jesus wouldn't behave in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Surely the Lord Jesus would never conduct himself in a way that challenges who I am and how I think about the world around me. Surely Jesus never conducted himself in a way that would break the minds and the hearts of the people around him. And then you realize, oh yeah, they did murder him, so that probably is not a really good question. Of course he did. And of course it's true for me as well. Too often we come to the scriptures with this mental portrait of his personality, which is, as I've been joking for weeks now, about as interesting as beige paint. We come to the scriptures and when we read of Jesus, we immediately kind of read onto him this placid personality, like he's been heavily medicated before the gospels even start just kind of walks around and says kind of cryptic things and smiles at people and hugs babies and then walks out, like some sort of politician that just got out of surgery. We, we, we misunderstand who he is because we bring so many false ideas, false preconceptions to the story. This story particularly is one of those as, well, we've just left the wedding feast of Cana. You remember Jesus has started to call his disciples. He's beginning his ministry. And the very first thing he does in public as part of his ministry is he goes to a wedding and miraculously creates somewhere in the neighborhood of $25,000 worth of wine. We talked about it last week. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 600 to 900 bottles of wine. There's a staggering amount of alcohol, and it's very good. And John tells the story, picking up in verse 12, and after this he went down to Capernaum with his family and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. And I'm sure those conversations had to have been captivating. tell tell me again how you did that I mean really tell me again how you did that can you imagine being the baby brothers I mean they, they knew he was good I mean all the spankings that they have gotten that he's never gotten they know he's good but suddenly now he's doing things that they don't understand he's making wine out of water that's impossible it can't happen And after a few days of what had to have been sweet fellowship and absolute confusion, it's Passover time in Jerusalem. We know this Passover, it's right at 27 AD, it's probably the first week of April. It's the first Passover of his public ministry, and after being away with his family, he comes into Jerusalem to worship. And as he comes into Jerusalem, he brings his family with him. He brings his disciples with him. For all of the Jews, the men would have gathered together in Jerusalem for worship. And as John tells us the story of what happens at this first Passover, there is one kind of theme that shows up with flashing neon lights for the reader to walk away with. And it's this... The Lord Jesus Christ is and always will be dominated by the culture of heaven. The Lord Jesus is always dominated. By the culture of heaven. Because here we see Christ have begun his earthly ministry and now he's going into the hub of earthly ministry. I mean this is the center point of religious worship on the entire planet. And it's the most significant week of that worship on the entire planet. And how will he conduct himself? He will conduct himself with the culture of heaven and not the culture of Jerusalem. It's going to put him out of step and out of sync with all of the world around him, for he will reek of glory and reek of heaven, and they will not. We're going to see how this works. The first thing that shows up is he's dominated by the culture of heaven. We're going to see this in his values. The value set that Jesus kind of brings with him does not match the culture of earth. It matches the culture of heaven itself. In fact, he's going to show obedience surpasses ease. They go into Jerusalem, and the center point of Jerusalem in this time would have been absolutely the temple, and everybody would have been headed that way for worship. And worship then being a little bit more complicated than today. Today, now, we need, you know, in the South, you need air conditioning. You need somebody to kind of clean the church. You need somebody to preach and place to be. and, And it's fairly simple. Not so much then. You had to have the temple. You had to have the priest. You had to have all of the regalia that was involved in that. You had to have the sacrifices. You had to have the blood. You had to have the offerings. You had to have it all. And it would have been unbelievably involved. So if you were traveling, let's say you lived in northern Israel and you had to travel down to Jerusalem, you didn't just have to pack up all the things for the baby like you do today. You had to pack up all the things for the baby and all the things for worship that were required. You had to bring your sacrifices with you. So it wasn't just kind of loading up the family and going, it was loading up the family and the animals and going. And it was a complicated process. In fact, it was so complicated of a process that many of the Jews had started figuring out a way to make life a little bit easier for people. In fact, actually, the travel would have been so complicated, you know what we can do? Instead of having everybody just bring their own offerings, why don't we just provide them there? Well, we'll make sort of kind of our our own pastoral grocery store. So that when they get there, instead of having brought their own lamb, we'll have a lamb waiting for them, and they can buy it at a well, mostly reasonable price. Instead of having to bring it with them all the way from Dan or Beersheba, or wherever they were traveling from, you just show up and you can purchase it there. In fact, actually, this is an improvement. Because if you bring your own lamb, there's no guarantee that the priest will find it acceptable. However, these lambs, we can go ahead and have the priest look at last week. We could bring them in in advance. The priest can examine them all. They could say, these are appropriate lambs. They're without spot. They're without blemish. They're right as rain. They're okay. And we'll just make the whole process easier. In fact, actually, let's go one step further. Everybody had to offer, uh, bring an offering with them, not just the animal, they had to bring the temple tax. You had to pay a tax to the temple kind of like uh, additional kind of tithe offering type of thing to help fund uh, the temple's ministry and you had to bring a half a coin and we know the type of coin Uh, it's a tyrian coin it's a very specific one in this time and usually because you had to bring a half a coin families would go in together so when nate and i went to bring our offering we'd go in together and his half a coin and my half a coin would match up and we'd give a coin together But that coin had to be a special type of coin, the Tyrian one. It was a certain one because of the at the time they actually know that the silver percentages and everything, it was a good coin. It was a dependable currency. And so, well, we'll go one step further and say it's kind of hard to get this currency some places. I mean, if you live out in the sticks, you live out in the middle of the boonies, it's really hard to get this type of currency. You're going to be using your own currency. We'll just provide it at the temple. So when you show up, You walk into the temple and you walk to one side and you go buy your sacrifices for your offerings and you walk to the other side and you can go to the money changers and say, here's five bucks, give me my Tyrian coin so I can pay my offering. And it's so unbelievably easy. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? You've made the people's travel easier, You've made their offering easier. You've helped actually, you've helped them provide offerings that are more likely to be acceptable to the priests. You've lowered the bar so it's even easier to do it. And interesting what happens Jesus walks in and you kind of get this moment where he, he comes around to the temple, he's up on the hill, comes around, walks in, and walks into the court of the Gentiles, which would have been the first big court where everything would have been, and it would have been chaos. You would have had the banks on one side, you would have had all the animals and the critters and the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons on the other side, and you, you can kind of imagine him walking in and just rage descending upon him. And if we're going to be honest If we're going to be honest American Christians, had we been standing next to him as a disciple, it truthfully would have confused us. Because all of what they've done, the Jews at this point, simply makes worship more accessible. It makes it easier, it makes it so that people can come and do this thing more easily. It makes it simple. It's streamlining. It's it's process engineering. It's improvement. And yet Jesus goes into a rage. Rightfully so. We know he's the Lord God. We know he never sins. So we know his anger is righteous. Why? Well, largely because we're seeing even his value set matches the values of heaven and not the value set of earth. The value set of earth is to take away difficulty. It's to remove the things that are stumbling blocks, challenges, difficulties, to remove all of the challenges of life to make everything easier. It's what we do. We're watching this in uh, the younger generations. The sociologists are beginning to write books, and they're, they're saying the parenting models of today are creating a tremendously different America because you're having generations raised with no obstacles in front of them. Everything's easy. They don't fail tests in school. They don't fail grades and have to redo them and use that as a great opportunity for development. They don't have losing seasons and everybody gets a trophy and all obstacles are removed so that it's always easier. Now, I'm not saying all those things are bad. I'm saying it's setting a cultural tone. We in America are the the just kings and queens of pragmatism. To take away all of the difficulties of life, to make it where nothing hurts, to make it where nothing feels bad. I love the commercials on the radio where you can hear for the new dentistry, where they just put you to sleep and do it all in one go. I love it. Not saying it's a bad thing, not saying you shouldn't do it, not saying any of those things. I am saying only Americans would invent that. We have laughing gas, we have all kinds of painkillers. Yeah, that's not enough, we're just going to knock you out cold. Okay, fair enough. You see, Jesus is not abiding by that cultural pattern. Though He's not falling for those ethics. He's, that's not His value set. His value set is not avoiding pain. He's there to go to the cross. His value set is not removing pain and suffering from everybody because He's going to use it for the benefit of His church for years to come. His value set is not always making things easier. In fact, actually, the conversation that's going to follow with the Jews is really confusing if you don't understand this. Because they ask him what seem to be fairly legitimate questions, and he gives them what seems to be, on the surface, really obnoxious answers. He's not, but on the surface it could seem that way. Christ is being dominated by the culture of heaven in which obedience surpasses practicality and ease. Obedience surpasses practicality and ease. And I might just lovingly, gently poke at you here a little bit. Where how often do we find ourselves where we have reversed those orders? Where ease and practicality and pragmatism and doing what works, those things become the defining values for what our obedience looks like. How we obey the Lord is shaped so often in our current cultural context by what is easy, what keeps us from pain, what makes me feel good. Christ is dominated by the culture of heaven. His values are shaped by glory. For him, obedience surpasses ease. Well, it's that that becomes the foundation for his next response. Verse 14, he comes into the temple, he sees all of the critters and the animals, he sees the money changers, a rage descends on him, and I I love verse 15, John tells us in, in what might be the most understated way I could possibly think of. Jesus walks in, and of course there's animals and creatures around, so there's going to be ropes and ties and harnesses and stuff laying around, and so he just quietly reaches over and starts grabbing them, braids them together. Ties himself a good handle, get a good handhold, and then he goes to work. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now, uh, the NIV actually softens this incorrectly. If you're reading from the NIV, it says, and he drove the sheep and the oxen out, and it drops one of the key words. The object of what he drove out is not the sheep and the oxen, it's all. With the implication being that he goes to town with a whip, beating sheep and oxen and people. His rage is so justified and righteous and holy, it's not just poured out upon the stupid creatures that don't know any better. It's poured out upon the creatures that carry his image. The ones that he was the agent of creation, the ones that bear his particular image, the one whose form he has taken on, that is poured out upon them. He is angry. So taking his whip, he beats the animals to drive them out of the temple. He beats the owners of the animals to drive them out of the temple. He goes over to the banking side of the temple. so they no longer have the ability to discern who belong, what belongs to each person. He drives them out. He goes to the owners of the birds and says, take these away. Well, they're in crates. You would have had to get the crates out. It wouldn't have been like they're, you know, you couldn't just hit the birds. And that doesn't work that way. They're, they're packaged. Take the packages out. Get everything gone. Take everything out of the court of the temple. Why? Because this is God's house, not a house of trade. And I love his response here because it helps us understand what's going on. What are the contrasts between? It's between God's house and a house of trade. Is a house of trade a bad thing? Absolutely not. The scriptures endorse that all throughout them in other places, working hard, using the skills that God has given you to make money to care for your family, using those goods and services to acquire other goods and services so that your family can be sustained. That's a good thing. The idea of a house of trade would have been a great idea. The problem is that it has overlapped with God's house. And so God, in the form of this angry young man, goes to work and again if you've been raised in a culture that has taught you like the Xanax Jesus, the placid Jesus, the one who who never gets rattled either way we've missed the point he's wrath incarnate and this actually is a key point to understanding who God is see we get angry And then we get unangry. And we get joyful, and then we get unjoyful. I know that's not a word, and the grammar is terrible, but you get the point. For us, emotions are a thing that we put on and we take off. We get sad, and it goes away. We get confused, or angry, or jealous, and it goes away. We, We can change our emotions like we change our clothes. Do youth ministry, live with teenagers, own teenagers, whatever. You will see this. It it happens at lightning speed. (laughs) Our emotional mood swings can have emotional mood swings. So they cancel each other out. We get all just bonkers and baffles. God is not that way. He is the same thing always. There's no turning with Him. There's no change with Him. There's no difference with Him. So He is always, all the time, always the same. So, whereas I might be angry and then I'm no longer angry and then I'm happy and then I'm no longer happy and then whatever it is, God is always the same. He's always love. Amen. Hallelujah. What a gift. He's always kindness. Oh, what a joy. He is always wrath. Yeah, it's a little bit more concerning than the others. I love the idea of him always being gracious. I love that idea. It is a bit more concerning when I think of him always being the wrathful God. Now, not wrath like mine or yours. Our wrath is so often petty. It's aimed at the wrong thing. It's created for the wrong reasons. In fact, actually, most of the time when we act in our wrath, we act on the wrong folks, don't we? punish those that have nothing to do with anything but they're there and they're available and so they get to be the recipients of wrath Jesus on the other hand here is demonstrating what godly emotions look like he's taking the culture of heaven and bringing it to earth right there in the temple and saying this temple is designed for the worship of the Lord and nothing else even good things like commerce should not infiltrate God's house It's for one thing and one thing only. And when God's name is at stake and when God's worship is at stake and when God's glory is at stake, his rage comes out. It's it's not frivolous. It's not evil. It's not foolish. It's not silly. It is righteous and holy in every way. In fact, it's so much that they begin. the disciples begin to realize things. They're putting it together even from the very beginning. That as he walks in and behaves this way, they go, oh, this is Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Oh, this is what it looks like to be absolutely captivated with the presence of God. That when you see the presence of God mixed with other things, it makes smoke come out of your ears. Now, realistically, if we're going to be honest, we all have those moments where rage comes upon us and smoke comes out of our ears and we get so angry we can't see straight. But 99.999, 100% of the time, it's because we're worried about what's happening to me. I feel like I'm being violated. I feel like I'm not being treated as I should be treated. I feel like it's unfair. I feel like I'm getting the short end of the stick. I'm feeling something of that sort and here Christ having no regard for his own status. This could have been the end of his ministry right here. He could have been crucified by the end of the day. That could have been it. 30-year-old guy walking into the temple throwing everybody out at the kind of financial heyday of the year. This would be the equivalent of walking into a store on Black Friday and saying, everybody out, it's closed. That's not okay. That was our prophet for the year. This is not okay. And yet he has. Because he's demonstrating what it looks like to have the appropriate understanding of heaven, of God's values, that obedience surpasses ease, that then emotions are governed by our theology. The third thing he turns to, what we're going to see here, is it, it, it shows us uh, his emotional set. It shows us his value set. But it's also going to show his understanding of authority. So the Jews, again, so beautifully understated. <laughs> so the Jews said to him, we've got a question for you. Yeah, I doubt it kind of read quite that gentle. This guy's just thrown everybody out of the temple using a weapon which uh, the Jews had forbidden in the temple. He was breaking cultural norms in already a number of ways, uh, but man, really being quite socially awkward, running everybody out. And so they come to him and they ask, "What sign do you show us for doing these things?" And that word "sign" there is a uh, uh, seal of authority. Who gives you the right to do that? I mean, really, who who, who are you to think that's okay? Who gives you the right? And here Jesus is going to demonstrate uh, that he's called to submit to God, not man. He's again taking heavenly values and bringing them to to earth because what is his response to them? Well, his response to them is really a bit of a non-answer. Who gives you the right to do this? Well, he answers in a cryptic question, uh, I mean a, a cryptic answer for them to ponder. Destroy this temple and three days I will raise it up. We, we, we kind of weren't talking about the temple. We were talking about who gives you the authority to do anything in the temple, and yet you're now talking about the temple and its destruction. This temple has been worked on for a long time, and it's not going to be finished for a long time. It's not going to be finished for another 33 years, and then it's going to be destroyed seven years later. They don't know that. But what in the world is happening? What are you saying, man? Jesus is teaching them a very important lesson. He's teaching his disciples a very important lesson is that these Pharisees, these Jews, these ones that run the temple, these priests, they think they are the final authority. And even in his response to them, he's instructing them, look, you're not the boss. God is the boss. You don't get to be the one that makes the rules. That's what he has done. He is the one who has spoken creation into existence. He is the one who has created salvation. He is the one who has done all good things. It's not your prerogative. You're not the boss. His answer is actually even more profound when you begin to look at the larger Old Testament context of what he said. One, because he actually did just do a sign for them. Actually, from the last sermon series, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says that when the servant of the Lord arrives, he's going to go into the house of the Lord and there will be cleansing and judgment. He's actually fulfilling the very task, the very promises, the very prophecies that was appointed for him. But on top of that, he actually gives an even bigger answer, which they don't understand. This is a very classic Jewish response, which is if you sit and ponder this, you actually can get to the, the solution. It's kind of like a really complicated riddle. If you're willing to take enough time to, to you know, stew on it in your brain, you, you can arrive at a solution. And yet they don't. Three days I will raise it up. He's speaking not of the actual physical temple. He's speaking of himself. (laughs) And what a beautiful statement it is. His body will be destroyed and in three days who will raise it up? He will. The Lord of life standing before them is in charge of it all. There's no lack to his power, no lack to his ability. There is no lack to his authority. He is the Lord of life. The Jews respond confused. Well, it's taking 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? That's impossible. It's taking a long time. And it shows us one last thing. The wisdom of the Lord Jesus. He gives them an answer at the very beginning of his ministry that would be so baffling, so confusing, that the disciples after his death would go, Oh, I get it now. It makes so much sense. He was telling us all along. I get it. It's so clear. The Lord Jesus knew what he was doing. The cross wasn't an accident, it was a plan. In fact, it was the greatest battle tactic in human history, all of history. That the second person of the Trinity would step inside time and space, would step inside flesh, would step inside the story of sin. He would eventually become sin. He would die. He would remain in the grave for a time so that upon the resurrection, his people would have all kinds of victory. What wisdom he has to give answers planned for years down the road for catastrophic events later that would be perfectly arranged to give help. It's my favorite part actually in the entire story. 22. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Like, oh yeah. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I, I love that. What's the result of Jesus' answer? Well, it, the, the The Jews, they don't get it. They're confused. They're lost. They're blinded. But his disciples, those that have humbled themselves before his word, those that are willing to ask and listen, those that are willing to watch and learn, what happens to them is they believe in the scriptures and they believe in Jesus because he is the living word. John's connecting those for us as he has in chapter one already. (laughs) The Lord Jesus is bringing to earth all of the economy, all of the value set, all of the culture of heaven. He's dominated with the culture of heaven in such a way that it it is a bit challenging and a bit off-putting sometimes. Why? Why? Why does that matter to me? Why is it important that I understand this text? Why? I mean, who cares that Jesus was dominated by the culture of heaven and not the culture of earth? Well, one is it's going to provide the framework for how we understand Him. Some of the stuff that follows is going to be challenging. The next conversation in chapter 3, Jesus is going to tell a man that he needs to be born again, and the guy's going to go, "Ah, that's really kind of awkward, sir, I don't know what you're talking about. Because he's operating under a different value set. He's not listening with the eyes of faith, he's listening with the eyes of the world. But more importantly, is that for God's people, this is what we will be made into. I'll put it kind of differently. We talk about sanctification. We use that big fancy word, the process of being made holy. And we define that a lot of ways. But a lot of times it involves that word holy. And most of us, that's a word we use but don't really have defined well in our minds. Another way to put that would be that we would follow in Jesus' steps in being shaped by the culture of heaven. That's what sanctification is. It's me or you being made to look more like Christ, being shaped into the image of Christ, and in doing so being shaped more and more into the image of heaven to take up the culture of heaven, to take up the values of heaven, to take up the emotions of heaven, to be made to look in the image of God. In fact, actually, this is the way the catechism, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, both define what sanctification is. It's being made more and more into the image of Christ. Being enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, shaped into the image of Christ. Well, there's good news and there's bad news about that. The good news is that it will be completed, and when we are called to glory, that's what glorification is, is we're made ready to be in heaven. There is no person that goes to heaven that doesn't belong there. That's not ready for heaven. Like, when you get to heaven, it's not like people go, Wow, he is really out of place. Man, we've got to get better standards in here. I can't believe they let him in. By the time you get there, you will have been made perfectly ready in that culture. It will be where you belong. That's why we call it home. You get there and it's right. That's what you're shaped for. That's what you're made for. We will be made new and we will be made new more and more into the image, the culture, the being of heaven. Heaven. But further, is more and more as we are shaped into that image of Christ and pick up that culture of heaven and the values and the emotions and the reasons and the logic of heaven, it will more and more distinguish us from the culture. Jesus has had two public aspects to his ministry already, two interactions. He, He went to a wedding. And he turned water into wine, which would have confused a lot of folks. And then he went into the city and made every Jew on the planet angry. (laughs) All of them. That's, That's his opening salvo, is to go to a party and make the party guests happy, and then go to the temple and make all of the authorities and most of the worshipers unbelievably angry. And it will continue as he goes through and through his ministry. That those that are poor and broken and needy will find consolation in him. Those types of people that when you read them and you kind of put together who this person is, you're like, I, c- I cannot believe he's actually talking to her. The real and truly, I, I can't believe he's talking to her. The Lord of life would talk to that lady. And then, lo and behold, she, she's transformed. And the, the good people in the story seemingly, those that are filled with pride and righteousness in themselves, will eventually kill him. They will murder him because he will not fit their standards because they want to be in control. The final question that I would leave you would be simply this. Whether you're a saint or not, whether you believe in the Lord Jesus or not, those are kind of irrelevant at this point, but is to walk away and to use this day to contemplate. How comfortable am I? submitting myself to who Christ is? That's the heart of the question. It's what John has been driving us to, and it's what he's going to do every single passage as we go through this book. At the end of the day, who's going to be the boss? Am I going to be my own boss? Am I going to walk away and say, you know what, I'm in charge of my life, I'm okay, I'm doing a pretty good job. In fact, bang-up job, actually. Eh, That whole death thing will be inconvenient at some point, but I'm sure I'll figure it out when I get there. Or am I going to be comfortable saying Jesus is the authority? And though sometimes it's going to make me uncomfortable, and sometimes it's going to demand things from me, He's going to demand things from me that I'm not really comfortable giving yet. And it's going to require me to submit that will that doesn't want to bend. Will I submit myself to the Lord? Will I submit myself? to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it presents to us. We thank you for the beauty that is the Lord Christ. Get angry and not sin. That's amazing. Thank you. Forgive us for being filled with self. Fill us with Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.